So this week, uh, as I was preparing for the sermon, oh, hey, half the sermon title isn't up there. Believe it or not, this sermon is also called The Prosecution Rests. It'll come up later. There's a quiz. Um, I was listening to uh, a song that was stuck in my head preparing for this sermon, and it was an old 1984 song by Rockwell and Michael Jackson, uh, Somebody's Watching Me. Do you guys know that one? What? Okay, a couple of you. Um, do you ever feel like that? He says as he walks up to be stared at by 100 people for half an hour and then be audio recorded and flung around the internet. Maybe it's just me. Um, sometimes it's paranoia when we think that everybody has their eye on us. And sometimes it's not. Um, take the, uh, the online advertising companies, for example, that pop up banner ads for products that I might like based on other sites that I've been near. That's a real thing. Uh, or identity theft, for that matter. Um, as presumably most of you are aware, uh, Equifax, one of the big three credit card companies, let something like half of all Americans' information be hacked this last month. Uh, birth dates, social security numbers, everything. Public service announcement. Um, so I spent an obnoxious amount of time uh, this last week online putting in six credit freezes between me and Meg um, so that nobody could open credit cards in our name and destroy my ability to ever, you know, buy a house or a car without just having a large suitcase full of cash or something. Pretty obnoxious and pretty real. Um, it's big business to spy on people, um, to say nothing of the various well-documented surveillance programs that we have here in the land of the free and the home of the closely monitored. Sometimes people are always watching you. Jesus gets this because non-Christians always have their eye on him. Now, you might hear that and think, Adam, I, I, think, you, I think you got that backwards. It's, it's Christians that are always watching Jesus. Well, hopefully that too. But the rest of the world is constantly scrutinizing this Jesus that they may or may not believe in. Um, they're looking for integrity or hypocrisy. Sometimes they're wanting to believe. Sometimes they're wanting not to. But they're watching him the one place that they see him most, and that's on the projector screen of our lives. This is true especially, sort of goes double, for those among us who not only identify ourselves as Christians in conversation, but also in appearance. You know, maybe you wear a cross, maybe you have a scripture-related tattoo on, or maybe you have stickers and patches with the name of a certain local Denver church on them, a name that, as I talked about last week, uh, is a statement of identifying ourselves with Paul and the other apostles, the original scum of the earth. As we explored the idea of holiness last week, that often misunderstood but very central part of what it means to be a Christian in general and the scum of the earth in particular, I got pretty theoretical, pretty conceptual, and I said, next week we're going to be back in the book of Acts, and we'll look at this in a little more concrete light about the power of a holy life in one of the places you'd least expect that to count, namely a courtroom full of corrupt politicians and people who will do anything to win. So I'm up here to follow through on that. When, uh, when Larry Guest preached a couple of weeks ago, he made some comments where he said, I'm only preaching on one verse tonight. I'm not going to unpack like a 27-verse passage like Adam or Mike. Uh, well, I'm doing a 27-verse passage tonight, so surprise! Um, we're, um, we're back in our uh, leisurely jog through the book of Acts that we've been doing for a while. Um, and we're in Acts 24 tonight, and it's a chapter that doesn't really break down into smaller parts very well, so we're doing all of it. 
Um, grab your Bible and or you can follow along on the screen with the text that will be up there soon. Um, quick recap before we do. Last time on the Bible. Um, Acts 24 is right after the Jewish Supreme Court drags Paul before them and they end up in this big theological brawl where they were, the text tells us there was a, a legitimate concern that Paul might be torn apart. Um, apparently their discussions about politics and religion went about as well as Americans do today. Um, after that, 40 Jewish guys took an oath to not eat or drink until they killed Paul and presumably starved. And then a Roman military leader evacuates Paul to Caesarea, where it's at least a little more likely that law and order will actually be carried out. So tonight, Paul is continuing his string of trials, seeing the inside of more courtrooms than a frat boy sees the inside of bars. And this week, he's up on trial before Felix, the Roman governor of the region. So that's where we're coming in tonight. Um, Before we get started in earnest, uh, I need to pray even more than usual. So join me in that. Holy Spirit, um, I'm really glad that you're running the show because I am just not that good at it today. Um, Lord, please give me energy. Please give all of us focus, um, the ability to really focus in on what you're saying in your word. Um, Please work in our hearts to get out of this whatever it is you want each of us to get out of this. Um, We want to be more like you. Help us to do that. We love you. Amen. All right, so verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order to not weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Um, I'm, I'm lactose intolerant, so this much buttering somebody up is pretty hard for me to digest. Um, just say it. Just spit it out. But Tertullus the lawyer is smart, and he knows how much is on the line here. And so does Ananias, the high priest, who traveled 60 miles the week leading up to this in an age before internal combustion engines to be there in person. Uh, for the trial that he hopes is going to kill Paul dead. Um, They know the threat that Paul is to the established order, and not just because true Christians are harder to manipulate politically, uh, to be controlled, but also because the way of Jesus, as Christianity was then primarily known, was going to wreck Ananias' version of Judaism. Essentially, Paul is on trial for being a Christian in hostile territory, uh, out in the world, which, quick reminder, is the only thing other than the kingdom of God that exists. Those are just the two halves of the universe. Um, Just like today, um, at least in the West, it's hard to actually prosecute somebody for being a Christian. You have to come up with some other charges that are related to the Christianity thing, but legally enforceable. Amidst all the glad-handing that Tertullus is doing to get Felix on his side, he's also reminding him of something in verse 2 when he says, We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, under your leadership. You want to know something about Felix's leadership? We know from ancient uh, ancient historians that Felix was a brutal leader. He had recently suppressed a rebellion, thousands of people strong, led by an Egyptian prophet. And you don't suppress rebellions with nice words. You do it with thousands of spear thrusts and gallons of blood. He had also, Felix had, uh, captured Eleazar, a leader of a group called the Dagger Bearers, 
and crucified many of his followers and left them there bleeding to death along the road as a warning to other troublemakers, Vlad the Impaler style. Dude knew how to crack down and make the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, enforced under penalty of death or torture, happen. And Tertullus is reminding Felix, you worked really hard to make peace happen, and this Paul is ruining it. Tough crowd. He goes on in verse 5. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Paul causes riots. That's an awkward charge to dispute, um, because riots did actually follow him. He wasn't inciting them. He wasn't trying to make them happen, but still. So that's the key of their prosecution strategy, the charge of, um, what do you call it, seditio or sedition, stirring up the people against their government. And that's what we would call a hanging offense. Um, If you're convicted of that, you are crucified. End of story. Um, It's the same crime that they charged Jesus with to crucify him about 27 years before this scene. Um, When Tertullus mentions the Nazarene sect, he's trying to bring that precedent to Felix's mind. So that's the political charge, and then it's propped up by religious charges. They say that Paul attempted to desecrate the temple and then got arrested by Jewish authorities. So the logic is, well, we had to arrest him. Of course he's a threat to Rome. Just get rid of him. Uh, The word in verse 5, where they call him a troublemaker, literally means he's a plague. He's a cancer of the Roman Empire that needs to be removed. And if they could shut Paul down, if they could find any legitimate evidence against him, they could stunt the growth of the way of Jesus. Could have changed history. Everybody's watching. It's Paul that's on trial. But in a very real way, it's Jesus who's on trial. So, verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. I like that Paul shows respect here, but he's not going to waste time Uh, buttering him up by lying about his wonderful, morally admirable leadership, because that would be a lie. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Um, Generally speaking, courtroom dramas really bore me. I know some people are into that. I've never been one of them. But I think that this is awesome. 
Um, do you remember that sermon at Jesse's maybe a month ago? Uh, it was called No Truth, See Life. Uh, he said that a spiritual discipline of his, don't remember if he called it that, was to look at a passage of scripture and ask the question, what does God care about in this story? What is God doing in this story? And this is such a great chance to do that because at surface level, it looks pretty mundane, right? So Acts is Luke's second book that he wrote back in Luke's first book, Luke. Uh, in chapter 12, Jesus told his disciples, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is that happening. Paul and Jesus are effectively on trial, and God the Holy Spirit, who in Greek is called parakletos, the counselor, the advocate, is advising Paul in real time. And that seems pretty cool to me, which is also something that we get the more we are in Christ that sort of direct line. And what does Paracletos, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, get Paul to say? The truth. He refutes the charges that are politically enforceable by simply saying, I'm an open book. You can ask anyone you like. The charges against me are false. Examine my life and see. I am blameless in these matters. Paul knows that he's lived in such a way ever since becoming part of the body of Christ that provides no evidence for charges against him or Jesus and plenty of evidence for the blameless integrity of those who are in Christ. And in the middle of this, Paul opens his mouth and Jesus jumps out, and this is my favorite part, verse 14, when he said, However, I admit that I worship the God of Israel that I am a disciple of Jesus, a follower of his way, that I believe everything that God has told us in the scriptures and that because of that I have the hope of eternal life, perfect justice, and amazing grace. Preach, brother. I love this. Dude's on trial. His neck is on the line in the most literal of senses, and all he can think about is glorifying Jesus his king. May everybody know him. Verse 22. Then Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and to permit his friends to take care of his needs. I'm going to call that a win. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that, That's enough for now. You, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. And at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Apparently, he doesn't know Paul very well. And when two years of this had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So verse 25, where Paul starts preaching, is hilarious to me. Um, See, we know from the historian Josephus that Felix was a pretty bad man, actually. His wife, Drusilla, was his third wife, and when he was still married and so was uh, she, he saw her and said, wow, look at that 20-year-old hottie. I want that, and talked her into leaving her husband so that he could remarry her instead because he disliked her more. Um, 
He also once bribed the best friend of a high priest named Jonathan to get Jonathan murdered by the Sicarii, the dagger bearers. And yes, that's the same group we mentioned, the one that Felix cracked down on when they were no longer useful to him. This is a man that was known to be greedy, lustful, and unjust. And what does Paul preach to him about? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgments to come. This is customized, targeted preaching to the man who can set you free or kill you. And Paul doesn't care. Like He knows that God is on the throne. And so not only is he completely unafraid for his own safety, but he cares enough for this man and for his eternal salvation that he preaches the specific truths of the way of Jesus that Felix most needs to hear. Paul is a badass. When I grow up, I want to be him. Maybe without the jail time. We'll see. This is what a living faith looks like. This is what purity of purpose looks like, where every aspect of your life, your character, is about Jesus and his kingdom. And it's a good thing that Paul consistently chose into living this kind of life because everybody was watching him. And everybody is watching us. Those of us who are uh, subculture types, you know this already. If you're a punk or a goth or a metalhead or a greaser or what have you, you know people are always watching you from the moment you walk into the room. Some of you don't care. There was a time that I didn't. But one day it dawned on me, when I'm walking around in my big old combat boots and my big black trench coat, everything that I do, every way I act toward people, is either evidence to confirm people's ignorant biases, oh, goths are Satanists and time bombs waiting to go off, they're disrespectful, they're antisocial. It's either evidence for that or it's evidence to the contrary. Neutrality is a myth. You can't not have an impact on people, and you can't not represent groups that you are visibly a part of. By being different, even in that, you know, just for fun way that does not define me as a human being, I'm still a full-time representative. And if you're a Christian, so are you. God has called you to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, and to be that for the express purpose of serving as evidence to the world of what our Father and Savior are like. We can confirm people's biases about Christianity. Oh, Christians are hypocrites, or they're judgmental, or they're too cowardly to actually live out what they believe. We can confirm through our actions that being a Christian is a bad thing. Or, just about as damning, we can confirm that being a Christian doesn't make any difference whatsoever in a person's life. Or, option three, we can be living evidence, like Paul, that not only does being in Christ not make you a jerk, it makes you a blessing to everyone around you. That he makes those who are in Christ salt and light, active change agents in this world, everywhere we go, making the world and individual lives better. More full of the hope that Paul spoke of to Felix and everybody else in the room. Paul's defense was just to showcase his own life. And that's the only evidence that some people will ever accept. So he shows them holiness, and that means two things, unpacking last week a little more. He's lived a holy life subtractively in that he is blameless 
of anything that would give people cause to speak ill of the name of Jesus. And he's also lived a holy life additively, where he's been actively living out the kind of character and actions that make people speak well of Jesus. Not so much of Paul, but for the Jesus for whom he and we are representatives. So let's break this down a little bit. What were the charges against Paul and the way of Jesus? That he, and by extension Christians in general, are disturbers of the peace. They claim to be peacemakers, but then they start riots. They claim to be an offshoot of Judaism, but then they desecrate the temple. It's hypocrisy, it's disorder. Paul refutes those charges, but he doesn't do so by arguing in the abstract. You know, he could have quoted from what today we'd refer to as scripture. He could have referred to Jesus saying, blessed are the peacemakers, or the times when Jesus intentionally avoided offending others unnecessarily, like when he paid the temple tax in Matthew 17, for example, even when Jesus knew that he didn't have to do that. But those sort of arguments don't hold as much weight when the charges are hypocrisy, when it's about the discrepancy between what is preached and what is practiced. So Paul offers his life as evidence. What are the charges that we Christians face today? There was a survey of those outside the faith a few years ago, and according to that, uh, 72% of those interviewed think the church is, quote, full of hypocrites. 79% think that today Christianity is more about organized religion than about loving God and loving people. 44% said Christians, quote, get on my nerves. So I get to study at Denver Seminary now, but when I was at undergrad, I was at Metro State, just up the street a little bit. And uh, when I was there, Christianity came up pretty often and basically never in a good light. My fellow students there, they talked about Christians being ignorant and unthinking. They said, we're out of touch with the world. They say that we don't just disagree with other people's behavior, that we hate them. They say we act like we're better than everybody else. They say these things as if they were common knowledge, because they are. And whether those things are true or not, or to whatever extent they are true or not, the relevant point is that everybody just knows it. Those are the charges that we are up against. Jesus was on trial in the year 30 or so. And Jesus was on trial in the year 60 or so, with Paul standing in for him. And Jesus is still on trial with us standing in for him. And people want to know, when Christians pray the Lord's Prayer and we pray, hallowed or holy be thy name, are they willing to live the sort of life that makes that happen or not? Is holy difference a real thing or is it just some sort of pious pretending? And whether we want this to be true or not, and whether for good or ill, our lives will be the answer to their questions. Peter, one of the apostles, the original scum of the earth, according to Paul, wrote a lot about this. Uh, let's look at First Peter 2, the portion that I quoted last week. And right after declaring us to be a holy nation of believers, chosen for the purpose of declaring God's praises, he goes on to say, Live such good lives among the pagans, the non-Christians, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. For it is God's will that by doing good, 
you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. That's the second kind of holy, of those two kinds I talked about, the additive kind. Not just being innocent of doing wrong, but being, quote-unquote, guilty of doing right. I love the sort of subversive way that Paul phrased that. I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, and I have great hope because of that God. Paul's doing what his fellow scum, the Apostle Peter, said a chapter after the Chosen People Holy Nation passage. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. We can do what Paul did. In verse 18, when he was being respectful of rules that we think are kind of dumb or irrelevant, and not respecting those rules necessarily because those rules matter to God. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Depends on the circumstance. We can show uncommon, non-mandatory respect for others and the way that they do things because that's how they'll first know that we're serious about this whole love-your-neighbor thing that we don't preach that and refuse to practice it. We can do what Paul did back in uh, verse 17. We can do good works like he did, which in his case was bringing monetary gifts for the poor among the people of God. Now, to clarify, this isn't announcing your giving with trumpets, which Jesus condemned in Matthew 5 because that was about getting your own glory. This is about what Jesus said in, excuse me, in Matthew 6. This is obeying what he said in Matthew 5, which is letting your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. The point is to direct any good regard that we get to him. We can do what Paul did in verses 24 and 25, unashamedly, boldly preaching the gospel of King Jesus, that God stepped down into a human body, suffered alongside us and for us, paid for our every sin and shortcoming, put death to death, brought life to the living, and reigns in glory until he comes back to right every wrong. And in the meantime, living through the tribe called Christians to transform this world and incarnate the kingdom of heaven in the lives of everybody who will let him. Paul had the power to preach that because of the same Holy Spirit that each one of you have if you are in Christ. Don't waste it. There's a theologian out there with one of the best names I know, Eckhart Schnabel. Good name. Good job, that guy's parents. Um, writing of Paul's conduct in Acts 24, he said, Paul insists that all accusations against him are connected in a fundamental manner with his commitment to the way of Jesus. He refers everything about him to Jesus. I'm going into 1 Peter a lot tonight, and here's some more, because it's really relevant to this. Uh, next slide, 1 Peter 4. If you suffer, suffer as a Christian. Don't suffer as a jerk who is a jerk, and now you're suffering because consequences. And likewise, if you're thought well of, be thought well of as a Christian. Point that praise at Jesus. You know, don't do that postmodern hatchet job. Don't let other people do that of dividing good things in you from your religious commitments as if they were somehow separate. 
point to Jesus explicitly as the reason for everything good in you, because scripturally that's just true. That's what people need to see when they look at you. That should be the first thing in their minds when they think about you. Not that you're a goth or a punk or a hippie, not that you smoke or drink or eat meat or that you're straight edge and vegan, not that you're really inoffensive, not that you're very offensive, and if you are, maybe stop it. Because what they need to see first and most always is that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you. That's everything for us, to be holy, to be set apart as witnesses whose lives testify to the one who makes us different. It's our job to make everything else about us fade into the background behind that one truth, that Jesus is good and that he is worth arranging your entire life around him. So at this point in the sermon, I could give you a laundry list of things to consider not doing in order to avoid being a stumbling block. I could give you a list of things to consider doing in order to be more effective witnesses to Christ in your spheres of influence. I'm not going to do that for two reasons, even though I've got some pretty definite ideas of what could go on each of those lists. I'm not going to do that because, in part, because you guys are too unique, too heterogeneous. You know, you're not the same so that I could just put this one-size-fits-all list on you, but also because I don't want to set you up for the same sort of trap that I fell into for so long, which is looking at life and faith as just sets of checkboxes. You guys are a creative bunch, which makes sense, because God is the ultimate creator, and every one of you is made in his image. So this is my challenge to you, this week especially, and every week. Spend time with God the Holy Spirit. Do that in Scripture. Do that in prayer, listening to what he wants to say to you, reflecting on what he has said to us through the Bible. And take a fearless, brutally honest inventory of the stuff you do, your ways of speaking, joking, listening, acting, and ask God, what in my life needs to go so that I can be a blameless representative of yours? And, part two, to then ask him these questions. What can I do in creative obedience to you, to show the world your holiness in me, to show the evidence of radical Christ-like change in me? How can I subvert and surprise with unconventional love and respect? How can I be a blessing to the people in my life in ways that none of them will see coming? That one's actually pretty fun. What are the ways, God, some that are big, some that at least seem small, that I can participate in my own prayer of your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth. The title of this sermon, even though it's not on the slide, was The Prosecution Rests. Because we are on trial as representatives of Jesus every day, but our goal is not the goal of worldly trials and lawyers. We're not out to destroy the prosecution, dismantle their case, humiliate them, We're ambitious. We're not going to settle for something as small as that. We're not going to settle for just winning the case. We're going to win them over, too. Our goal is not that those who scrutinize Christianity just shut up and leave us alone. Our goal is to lead the prosecution to rest in Christ, 
the same kind of rest that we have with our Good Shepherd. We are a holy nation, a chosen people, a family of witnesses. We are living evidence. Let's lead those who accuse us of hypocrisy and apathy. Let's lead them to Jesus himself in everything we do. Let's live our lives in such a radically holy and peculiar way that we become lights, leading them home. To all of you who accept that challenge, our one job as Christians, now we take communion. It's a reminder of the living, dying, living sacrifice that Jesus became to deliver us from death into a new and purposeful life in him. If you call Jesus your Lord, your King, this is for you. And if not, this is the one part of the service we'd ask you to abstain from for now. So after this, uh, come on up. Um, tear off the bread or the gluten-free stuff. Tip it in the, uh, dip it in the juice. Um, tonight we're going to be... Um, receiving communion, and then turning around and serving the person behind you. So present them the bread and the the juice and tell them, this is the body of Christ which has been broken for you. This is the blood of Christ which was shed for you. Take him into yourself. Be united with Christ. Join his mission. Amen. Amen.